Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. I think there's a fork in the road for a lot of people that want to be in real estate. And I think people need to sit at that fork in the road and really think about which way to go. And that's whether to be an operator, which is a full-time pursuit, or at least it should be. It takes up a lot of time to do it well, or whether they should be a passive investor and just be educated on how to be a better investor because they're already good at something else. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, best ever listeners. Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Ivan Barrett. Ivan is joining us from Carmel, Indiana. He is the founder and CEO of BAM Companies. They have 150 full-time employees across their operations. Their business model is on value-add multifamily real estate. Their current real estate portfolio consists of 7,500 apartments, and they've also sold about 2,000 apartments so far. Ivan, thank you very much for joining us, and how are you today? I'm great, Ash. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It's been a little while since I've been on the Best Ever podcast. It is fantastic to be back. Ivan, it's our pleasure having you. If you would, will you share with our Best Ever listeners a little bit about what's going on now and what you're focused on? So BAM today is, as you said, a little over 150 employees. We're, gosh, closing in on about a billion two of assets under management. We've got over 1,100 investors that come alongside us into our funds. We switched over to funds several years ago. And I get to have a lot of fun. I get to speak on occasion. And I spend the most of my time meeting with other CEOs, usually that are a little higher up the mountain than I am, seeking their wisdom and their experience so we can continue to scale this company. And right now we're keenly focused on that scalability. And the big question is, how do we get there but still maintain the culture and the investor experience for our major stakeholders, the investors that come alongside us? Ivan, where are the majority of your properties? We're highly focused here in the heartland or the Midwest, Indiana especially. That's our hometown, but also Ohio, Illinois. We've got a big bet in Des Moines, Iowa. And then we just went a little farther south into northwest Arkansas near the headquarters of Walmart. Near Bentonville, right? 
Bentonville, yep. Yeah. That were a suburb of Bentonville called Rogers. How come you're not in Phoenix and South Carolina and Nashville and South Florida? The short answer is, Ash, we saw a lot of value here in the Midwest. We saw cities successfully decoupling from the Rust Belt moniker they've had of old. I think the best quote I could use would be Wayne Gretzky and skate to where the puck is headed, not where the puck is. And so when others were chasing sexier, hotter markets and paying more for those assets, we were able to find much more value here in the Midwest in markets that were successful in diversifying their employment, great school districts, great suburbs. We tend to buy suburban markets where there is slow but steady demand for housing. Is your model the same as the majority of multifamily where you do interest-only variable rate loans? We have a mix in our funds of interest-only floating debt. When we use that tool, we are pairing that with lower leverage and some hedges, either rate caps, interest rate escrows, or just cold hard cash in the bank, or a combination of all three to hedge that risk of rising rates. How bad did the rising rates impact your business? I would say bad is a relative term. Inside the funds, we have a couple deals that the debt cover is around one or maybe just a little bit less than one. But in those same funds, there's assets that are still cash flowing quite strongly. So the advantage of having the fund is that you've got some trophies in there that can carry the cash flow needs of the entire portfolio if one or two assets aren't treading water or performing as well as they should be. So that and pairing that with lower leverage and keeping a lot of cash on the sidelines, we've been able to weather that storm quite well. Have you done some risk modeling in terms of how long these higher rates are sustainable for your business model? Oh, we stress test the portfolios constantly looking at what are the run rates or how much cash we can burn before things start breaking? Absolutely. And how much runway do you have? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. I don't have the answer to those specific portfolio questions off the top of my head. But what we've done that's been very effective is to have a lot of liquidity on hand. So across four funds, the current liquidity is somewhere between 35 and 40 million of excess cash that we haven't distributed to our LPs. And most of our assets are still debt cover of anywhere between 1.1 and in some cases still 1.5 because we've got a mix of floating and fixed. And so while I can't tell you it's four years or five years of runway, we still have quite a bit of runway left. And then here in the Midwest, unlike some of those hotter markets you and I were talking about a little bit earlier, we've still got rising rents. We've still got rent growth versus a Phoenix or some of the other hotter markets in Florida and Texas. So the rent growth here is still, in some cases, double digits. The asset level overall, it's high single digits. And then we didn't see the increase in uncontrollable costs that a lot of other sponsors have seen in other areas of the country, namely insurance. Some of my friends in other parts of the country are dealing with double and triple the insurance rates, where here they were up about 9%. And then also property taxes 
A lot of municipalities have been chasing property values and increasing property taxes on owners of real estate. Indiana is a shining example. I believe it was number three this year in best property tax regimes in the country. I'm glad you brought that up. That really is a silver lining in that rents in the Midwest have not really gone down, whether it's commercial, single family, multifamily, whereas nationally they're down about 1% year over year. Do you also get tax abatements on any of these properties? No. They're value-add properties, right? Well, the way we approach value, Osh, is different than most people approach value. We look for operational value first and foremost. So if I were to have, say, a pie chart in front of me, operational value, physical value, and then finding markets where we still have a high conviction that the market can grow with rents, that slice of that pie attributed to operational value or saving dollars is significant. So what we've been able to accomplish the last couple of years is look for operating value versus a traditional heavy physical value play. Ivan, you mentioned you want to control every line in your P&L and you've got 150 plus full-time employees. Does that mean you're vertically integrated? You self-manage all of your properties? Self-manage everything. And we've got one of the best management cultures, I would say, in the country. I'd put my maintenance team up against anyone. I started this business as a property management company, first serving investors on their properties. Today, we don't do that any longer. We only deploy our special team on assets that we're the general partner. For example, maintenance is a huge factor for that. So we train and develop folks in-house on the maintenance side of the equation, so much so that we rarely pick up the phone for an outside contractor, say for HVAC, air conditioner unit goes out. We're typically able to troubleshoot that and repair that in-house, which is one of several big money savers. And every dollar, as you know, I add to the bottom line, increases the value of that property. How do you cultivate such an environment where you're not like the rest of the world, you're struggling to keep and find good maintenance people? Well, it started a long time ago with a wild and crazy idea, Ash. What if we had a management company where people liked their jobs? And what if we had a maintenance team where maintenance technicians were knocking on our door to come work for us? And starting off with that question was really the catalyst to building that culture. And I was lucky enough to have some incredible people that I hired early on that took that belief and that proverbial baton and ran with it and executed on that idea much better than I could. It's really quite simple when you think about it. If I treat people well and I take care of them, they'll take care of the business. They'll tend to stick around longer and they'll tend to do a better job. And we put a high emphasis on that employee culture. Over time, it's certainly not a straight line to get to where we've gotten, but over time, it's really started to mature. And I'm seeing some unstoppable momentum in our culture. Now, we've got to hold true to that as we grow, but we've got a lot of people that are really charged with making sure that we do. On the maintenance side of things, it first starts with, like I said, taking care of those people. Now that we're big enough, we've got full-time dedication to in-house training, getting folks certified in EPA and other maintenance technical skills. 
and we take care of stuff. I think the best anecdote I could give you would be we had a maintenance technician. Only had worked for us for about three months, but had been an incredible, loyal person on our team. And he gets in a bad motorcycle accident. And he's going to be out of the job for four months. Well, guess what? He didn't check the disability box on his benefits form. And if he's going to be loyal to us, we're going to be loyal to him. It's one of our core values. We're a loyal, loving family. And so we said, hey, we got you. We'll take care of you. We'll continue to pay you. You get healthy and come back. And now I've got another loyal, loving maintenance person who will tell other people in the industry just how great his experience has been here at BAM. Yeah, that's a great story. Ivan, you've got $40 million in liquidity. Are you just out on a shopping spree trying to find great deals? Well, I am on a shopping spree. Last year was pretty fun. Even though the equity's gotten harder to raise, we have found some great opportunities. That $40 million of liquidity is at the asset and the fund level. So that's just cash sitting there in an insured account, earning about 5% right now. And that's there for in case interest rates continue to rise or other unforeseen circumstances so that we can continue to weather the storm. As rates stabilize and we're able to maybe fix a little bit more of that debt, that cash eventually will be distributable to the investors. And is that new money coming into the fund or is that money that's been gotten from P&L's operations and sales? It's not new money. That's previously raised capital, new operations, maybe a property sale, depending on the fund we're talking about. But that's just money that we've stored up. We're typically anywhere from five to six times what bank mandated reserves are. And have you had to pause distributions to build up that reserve? No, we actually told our common equity investors early on that only our preferred equity investors would likely see any cash flow out of funds until a capital event. So our common equity investors shouldn't have any expectation of cash flow along the way. We only distribute to our preferred equity shareholders, if you will, and we store up the rest of that cash. The preferred equity, is that a flat rate of return? Is that a debt investment? I would say a lot of it walks and talks like debt. It's technically equity, but in some ways how it's classified for taxes, it's equity, but it really feels more like a debt instrument to the investor as it's a monthly cash flow payment with no further upside at sale, just return of capital. Got it. So today you mentioned difficulty with raising equity. What are you finding with investor sentiment, with everything that's going on in the economy, geopolitical issues? I'm sure you're having a lot of conversations with investors. What's their health? What's their sentiment towards multifamily? Oh, it spans the whole spectrum of sentiment. I've got large, wealthy families that want to double down on real estate because they see a sale in assets. And then on the lower end of the net worth spectrum, maybe the million to five million net worth investor, there's a lot more uncertainty. A lot of people say be greedy when people are fearful, but most investors really can't adhere to that rule when the uh, proverbial, you know what, hits the fan. And then even there, we're seeing some headwinds, right? So you've got lots of investors that were expecting a capital event, a syndication that they're in to sell, which is now not selling. So their portfolio is maybe tied up in more illiquid assets. And we've seen a lot of investors be on the sidelines. So we've had to go out there and, and fill the pipeline with new investors. 
And across the board, we're seeing, I would say, certainly more negative sentiment than we maybe did in 21 and early 22. And it seems to have settled down now in the last few months where more people are sort of poking their head up looking for opportunity. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. A 1031 exchange is one of the greatest tools to build your real estate portfolio. But before you sell your next investment property, if you want to save thousands in capital gains taxes, please give our friends at 1031 Pros a call. Whether you're an individual investor, title company, or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help you or your clients with their 1031 exchange needs. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros specializes in various types of exchanges like delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states, all while ensuring your transaction is fast, reliable, transparent, and secure. 1031 Pros has handled over 20,000 audit-free exchanges, and right now, best-ever listeners can get $250 off any exchange by visiting my1031pros.com slash bestever. That's my1031pros.com slash bestever to get $250 off today. Have you heard that Mint, the popular personal finance app, is shutting down? If you use Mint, that's bad news. The good news is that there's an even better alternative, Monarch Money. Monarch gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with others. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. Most personal finance apps are clunky and cluttered with ads. Monarch is different. Its intuitive design makes setup, customization, and everyday use simple and easy. Monarch is also the most customizable budgeting app available. You can change your dashboard layout, create custom budgets and notifications, and even invite your partner, accountant, or financial advisor to have a joint view of your finances at no extra cost. Once you try Monarch for yourself, you'll understand why it was named 2024's best budgeting app by the Wall Street Journal. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash best ever. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash best ever for your extended 30-day free trial. With higher rates being paid on savings accounts, I would assume cash is king now more than ever. How are you getting investors in that are okay with not receiving any payments until a refi or a sale? Well, we've got two classes of investor now. We've got the investor that's looking for monthly cash flow, which we've been still, again, consistently paying that over the last four years. And we've grown that tranche of capital significantly in that time. That investor's typically more liquid. They've sold a business, they're retired or semi-retired, and now they're just looking for yield on that investment. And then our common equity investor is typically someone still in their earning years. They've got income coming in from elsewhere, and their interest is in the outsized returns that we offer on the back end, less concerned with cash flow. And what are those typical returns in today's environment? So the monthly payments, is that 10%? We have products ranging from 9 to 11, depending on how much the individual invests. And on the common equity side, we've had 12 exits so far, approaching $250 million return to investors. That's been a 2.5x average return on a 3.5-year hold, which generated an IRR around 34%. I certainly wouldn't expect that to continue forever. I think over time, whole periods will get back to around an average of five years, maybe a little bit more in certain circumstances. 
And if I can keep that two and a half X multiple on a, say a five-year hold, that's still a mid twenties annualized return or IRR. Ivan, what are you doing to find deals today? Same thing we always do, Ash. Relationships matter a lot when we're buying institutional assets that are typically 50 to $80 million purchase price. A lot of that's run through the brokers. We're very keen to have a great reputation, not only as great buyers, but as great sellers, easy to work with. And even our off-market deals typically come to us via an institutional multifamily broker. So it's got a team dedicated to staying out in front of those brokers and keeping those relationships warm. And after that, it's kissing a lot of toads. There's one thing I can't change about a a business plan, and that's what I paid for the asset originally. So we have to be very disciplined. And that buy box is pretty small. 2023, a few more opportunities were square in the middle of that buy box. And it just became a little bit harder to raise the capital to find those assets. So it's really just working muscles I haven't needed in a while when deals were harder to find and equity was everywhere. Now that's flipped. There's more opportunities and less equity to go around. So you've got to work a little bit harder on the equity side. And the same amount of effort on the acquisition side produces a few more fat pitches. What are you doing to lure investors in, educate them, and bring them onto your platform? Oh, gosh, what are we not doing? I can't tell you necessarily one way to find a 1,000 investors, but there's 20 ways to find a couple hundred. We do a lot of online outreach, a lot of education, a lot of video content, webinars about who we are and what we're offering, and try to be as transparent as we can with the individual investor so that they can self-select if we are a good fit, a good partner for their portfolio. Our greatest source of capital is still repeat investors and referrals from those repeat investors. And then beyond that, we do a lot of outreach, a lot of marketing and advertising to meet new potential investors, new potential partners. I think a lot of syndicators overlook the value that they have in referrals from existing investors. Is there any advice that you have in implanting that into your investor's mind that if you have friends and family that are interested in growing their capital, please refer them to us? How do you get them on board with that? The easiest thing you can do, I should say the simplest, it's not that easy, but the simplest thing you can do is perform for your current investors. The good news about the business we're in, Ash, is everybody likes to talk about the real estate they own. So if you perform well for your investors, chances are you're going to come up at a cocktail party here and there. And you can get a lot of referrals that way without really pursuing them too diligently. You've got to balance it there because just flat out asking people for referrals can work against you. But there are a dozen ways to weave that into a conversation. One of which, just like you said, is literally asking your LP, do you know anyone else that you think would benefit from what we do here? And if you do, we'd love to talk to them. Ivan, you've got a very strict buy box. However, there's a lot of distress out there in the market. If you saw deals that were outside of your buy box, both in number of units, age, or geographic location, would you entertain taking those deals down? Or are you staying true to your buy box? 
I think it's very important to stay focused and stick to our knitting. Now, we are looking at more markets. We will continue to look at the southeast a lot. I think there's going to be some more opportunities as the shine sort of comes off the southeast. But you won't see me necessarily going to Phoenix or South Florida anytime soon. My goal is to do this one thing really, really well and stick to what I know. And I've seen too many times not only in real estate, but in other areas of business, folks that spread themselves too thin or they get that halo effect. I'm good at this, so I could certainly be good at this other thing. And I think that's a recipe for disaster, Ash. Ivan, if you think back to maybe some of the early days when you started this company, what's one of the biggest mistakes that you made that hindered your growth at the time? Oh, gosh, we could spend a whole podcast on that, man. I made every mistake in the book along the way. That's why I started with the management company and started small so that I could fail small and learn those mistakes on 15, 30-unit projects versus a 300-unit deal. Certainly made a mistake early on of thinking that I could repair a heavy value-add deal with cash flow from the deal. That was almost the kiss of death, making that move. Wouldn't do that again. I think the biggest mistakes that are really tough to avoid in scaling a company are hiring. People say, oh, hire slow, fire fast. Well, when you're growing a company, sometimes you just have to hire fast and fire fast. So before we got our core values down and really got a good group of people, there was a lot of hiring mistakes, mostly made by me, being in a hurry to hire people and grow a company. So I would pass that on to anybody, be really diligent, but understand that in almost every case, an entrepreneur or founder like me, it's just something we go through. It's really hard to reduce those mistakes altogether. It's just something we all have to learn. And my advice to best ever listeners who want to grow and scale a big company really is just to remember to get back up after getting knocked on your ass. Ivan, you could take a minute to think about this next question. Okay. But what is one thing on your to-do list that you are procrastinating or not looking forward to doing? <laughs> oh, let's see. Thankfully, that's probably a shorter list than it used to be. <laughs> Everybody has that list. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's probably a few people on that list that I need to make time for that are just still sitting on that to-do list. That person I haven't called in a while that I keep saying, oh, I need to get back in touch with them. I haven't talked to them in years. And they're sitting on my people I need to call list. What do you do to motivate yourself to knock those items out? I try to own my morning. I try to set up my mornings to where I'm not on the phone or checking email or in a meeting. And I try to keep those mornings free. And then I've got little reminders on there. One of them's my 50 people list, people that I keep in touch with that I don't necessarily get to talk to on a regular basis. So they're on a list. I know where they're at and I know what I need to do. Now it's just making that time and getting my morning back. Good. Ivan, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Best real estate advice ever. Well, I think there's a fork in the road for a lot of people that want to be in real estate. And I think people need to sit at that fork in the road and really think about which way to go. And that's whether to be an operator, which is a full-time pursuit, or at least it should be. It takes up a lot of time to do it well, or whether they should be a passive investor and just be educated on how to be a better investor because they're already good at something else. For example, a doctor or an executive or somebody that's really good in another industry. 
I oftentimes will see people that want to jump to real estate because they think it's easier than the thing they're already doing and probably successful at. And most of those people should double down on what they're already good at, what their gifts are, and be an LP. And then there's that few ones that are really designed to do what Fairless does and what I do and turn on that path less taken and grow a successful real estate business. I have an off-the-wall question that I'd like to ask you is how often do you communicate with your investor list or potential investor list? And the reason I asked this question was I do a lot of market research on competitors or different markets. I signed up to receive an OM from a syndicator and within 24 hours, I had three voicemails, multiple texts, emails, and those haven't stopped until I had to reach out and just say, please stop, take me off your list. They inundated me. And that was a bit much. I don't want to be on that list ever again. How often do you reach out to your list? That's a tricky dance. It's a little bit like dating and you don't want to be too desperate to win that date. What we're striving to do is say, and I don't have the cadence in front of me, but we try to send something out weekly. What we're striving to do, though, is to have eight or nine of those emails that would go out, for example, be educational versus here's a deal. Do you have any money? If it's a new lead, we do try to reach them immediately with a text or a voicemail, but then we're not blowing them up three times a day, every day until they answer, because as you know, that can really work against you. Ivan, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Oh man, this whole thing felt like a lightning round, Osh, but I'll do my best. <laughs> All right, Ivan, what's the best ever book you recently read? I'm rereading Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks, a very timely book, great investor, a market conditions-based investor, Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks. And then I read a lot of biographies now. They're some of my favorite books to read versus the next How to Be Great in Business, a real estate book. Favorite biography I've read in a long time is The Gambler, How a Penniless Dropout, Kirk Kerkorian, became the greatest dealmaker in capitalist history. I don't know if he's number one, but he's way up there on the list as far as what he did, where he came from, and where he went. And he did it with class and integrity. Fantastic page-turning story. I think I gobbled this one up in a matter of days. Awesome. I just put that on my list. Ivan, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Well, we give a lot of treasure, both as a company and my wife and I personally. But I think the best way to give back, especially with little kids who live in this fantastic life, this bubble here we call the U.S. of A., is to give back time. And we like building homes in other parts of the world that are really suffering from third world conditions. Ivan, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? BAMcapital.com or 317-762-2625. 317-762-2625. Ivan, thank you very much for your time today. You are one of the pioneers of real estate syndication and one of the most respected people in this industry. So thank you again. It's an honor to be here, Osh. Thanks for giving me the time. And I sincerely hope we've added some value to your audience. Best ever listeners. Thank you as well for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.
Hi, Best Ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and Best Ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the Best Ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.